Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 256, Aaron Schellenberger from Trinitarian to Unitarian, Part 3. Mr. Schellenberger, welcome back to the Trinity's Podcast. Dale, thank you. In our previous discussions, we talked about a lot of your experiences, but let's just start off this episode with just putting your cards right on the table where everybody can see them. What are the views that you now hold about God and about Jesus? Well, it's really simple. I base my theology on the Bible, and for me, the Bible is very clear pertaining to the nature of God. It's clear to me that the Father alone is the only true God. How I arrive at that uh, belief is by looking at all the relevant passages. Trinitarians believe that, according to the Bible, the Father is the one true God. Now, this may come as a surprise for most Unitarians, but the fact of the matter is Trinitarians do believe this, and I would like for listeners to be very attentive to what I'm about to explain. Again, Trinitarians believe that the Father is identified as the one true God, according to the Bible. We know that the one true God is identical to God Almighty and to Yahweh, according to the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. And of course, Unitarians believe the same thing. Trinitarians believe that, according to the Bible, in addition to God the Father, Jesus is identified as the one true God. So, for Trinitarians, Jesus is God Almighty. He is Yahweh. Now, as a Unitarian, you might say, oh, wait a minute now. According to John 17:3, the Father is identified as the only true God. And if the Father is the only true God, then no one else is, right? Mm -hmm. It's similar to me saying, Christy is my only daughter. And so it would make sense to say that if Christy is my only daughter, then no one else is. I have no other daughter aside from Christy. Plain and simple, right? Well, how is it possible for Trinitarians to hold the view that the Father is the only true God, and at the same time, that Jesus too is the only true God? Only means only, right? Well, yeah, the Trinitarians agree that only means only, because they're not stupid at all. You know. In fact, you have very smart people out there who are Trinitarians, and hence they know that only means only. The question is, what in the world is going on here? At this point, I'd like everyone who is listening to this to stop, look, and listen, if you will, because I know what I'm talking about. I, I was a Trinitarian apologist. Let me start by asking people to consider two statements. Number one, the Father is the only true God. Number two, the Father alone is the only true God. These two statements are compatible with the Unitarian view of God, but they're not compatible with the Trinitarian view. Notice the presence of the word alone in the second statement and the absence of it in the first statement. The presence or absence of alone makes a huge difference in the discussion. So, Trinitarians agree with the first statement, namely, the Father is the only true God. In fact, they affirm it. 
This is why every time a Unitarian brings up John 17.3, the Trinitarian would respond saying, yes, of course I believe John 17.3, and I affirm that the Father is the only true God. Why do you keep asking me if I agree with the text mm-hmm. or if I affirm that the Father is the only true God? The Trinitarian that I was thought this way. Merely looking at John 17.3, we cannot determine if Jesus is not the only true God. Dr. Robert Bowman Jr. and J. Ed Kamazuski wrote a book titled, Putting Jesus in His Place. And in their book, these gentlemen wrote on page 353, note 21, quote, Jesus' statement in John 17.3 distinguishes himself from the Father, to whom he is speaking in prayer. But grammatically, it does not deny that Jesus is also true God. That Jesus himself is God is affirmed three times in the gospel. End of quote. Bowman and Kamazuski cite John 1.1, 118, and 20.28. They also refer the reader to see chapter 12 of their book. Now, I want to be as fair as possible to this Trinitarian line of reasoning. First, strictly on grammatical grounds, John 17.3 can be interpreted the way Bowman and Kamazuski interpret it. Just looking at that one verse without considering the context or anything else, just looking at the verse. It seems to me that on grammatical grounds, they might be correct on that one. The second thing to consider is, logically speaking, just looking at the verse again, For all we know, there may be another individual or two who is also in the category only true God. For all we know, before we look for evidence, Jesus might be included in that category. And so, this is the reason why whenever apologists like James White debate Unitarians, he always brings up this charge against Unitarians. Namely, the Unitarians are assuming Unitarianism before they come to the verse, to this particular verse, John 17, 3. Now, we know that Unitarianism is the view that God is one being, one person. And so, if you assume one being, one person, God, then, of course, you will interpret John 17, 3 to be saying that Jesus is denying himself being the only true God. So I think what you're saying is that when Trinitarians look at this passage, they see only true God as a predication. They're saying, hey, there's this status being only true God. And just because one person has that status, only true God, it doesn't follow that nobody else has that status. Now, if it said only the Father is only true God, well, that'd be different, right? A lot of times they'll appeal to 1 John 5.20, which they interpret, I think, wrongly, which they interpret as using the phrase true God in reference to the Son. Yeah. But does grammar allow their reading? I mean, the thing is, it's clearly quantifying. You know, the only is not part of the description true God. True God is the description. And to say there's only one of those... The Father is the only one of those. Like, if I say Trump is the only true president of the United States, then no one else is president of the United States unless they're the same person as Trump. So, once you recognize quantification going on, it's not just talking about the quality of being divine or having the the status only true God. That's kind of the way I approach it. 
Well, here is how a sophisticated Trinitarian apologist would respond to your example of Trump being the only president, and hence no one else is. The comeback to that is, as I've tried to explain, for all we know, God may be more than one person. And so when you assume that God is only one person, then of course, you're going to want to say Jesus is denying himself being the only true God. You don't have to be assuming that, though, to take it as quantifying, as counting, right? You have a Trinitarian like Augustine, and he looks at this passage and he says, hmm, I wonder if this isn't quite right. Should it say the Father and the Son are the only true God, or the Father and Son and Spirit are the only true God? So he gets that it's quantifying. I think this is how the Trinitarian apologist would come back to that. God is God, and we are not. And so we are individual beings. We are human beings. You know, a human being is one person. Mm -hmm. One being, one person. Whereas God, in the minds of the Trinitarian, is one being, three persons. They're asking the question. They're not even, at this point, trying to say that God is really more than one person. They're just asking the question, could it be that God is more than one person? And if that's the case, if that's even possible, then we have to allow the possibility that not only is the Father the only true God, Jesus, too, is the only true God. That's what they're trying to say. Yeah, they think that somehow people are leaping to conclusions based on just, you know, our limited experience that where there's one being, there can only be one person. Yeah, the apologist now is saying that you are simply imposing your understanding of you being a human being, being one person. But if we allow God, who is not like us, who may be one, you know, three persons or at least more than one person, then perhaps we should allow the possibility that the text may not be saying that at all. Yeah, I mean, we might ask them what they mean by more than one person in one being. But, I mean, yeah, you don't want to just rule it out just because it doesn't make sense to you or it sounds strange or it's not scriptural language. That seems right. right. I mean, what the final issue really is, is, you know, what's the best reading of the text that we have? Back when I was attending seminary in 2009, I wrote this article titled An Exposition of the Jehovah's Witnesses' Argument in Rejecting Christ's Deity Using John 17.3. In this article, I aim to neutralize or nullify the objections that Unitarians such as Jehovah's Witnesses were attempting to lodge against the idea that Jesus may be the one true God of the Bible in addition to God the Father. And so in my article, I wasn't even trying to defend as far as trying to provide positive proof for the deity of Jesus or for Jesus being God Almighty. I wasn't even trying to do that. What I was trying to do was to show that merely looking at John 17.3 does not give us the conclusion that the Father alone is the only true God. And I put together a number of arguments in an informal and formal fashion, and then I dealt with the objections, and I thought I was successful in showing that. But now with my Unitarian view of God, 
I'd like us to go back to those two statements that I laid out. Again, number one statement, the Father is the only true God. Number two, the Father alone is the only true God. Statement one is my position, but statement two more so to uh, close the deal for the absolute Unitarian view of God. Now, how did I arrive at this? Well, I not only look at John 17.3, I also look at other parts of the Bible. And from what I've discovered, from what the evidence tells me, the Father alone is identified as the only true God, the only God, and the one God. So, only true God, that's found in John 17.3. Only God, that's found in John 5.44. And then one God that's found in 1 Corinthians 8.6 and also 1 Timothy 2.5. Now, with this position right here, the Father alone is the only true God, we have to say that if the Father alone is the only true God, then no one else is, not even Jesus. And so, all of a sudden, the Trinitarian is, I believe, stomped. Because he can't use, well, you're just taking things out of context from what we read in John 17, 3. It doesn't say only the Father is the only true God. Well, I'm not even using just 17, 3. I'm using that verse and other verses. Jesus is never called the only true God, the one God, or the only God. There's only one person called that or identified as such, namely the Father. Another striking thing, not only do you see Jesus not called the one God, uh, you don't see him called the Almighty. That's another phrase that is used for the Father only. And you see it in all the early creeds too, right? We believe in one God, the Father Almighty. John 5.44, how can you believe me when you accept glory from another and do not seek the glory that comes from the one who alone is God? That's, That's obviously the Father there. Well, yeah, it's presupposing it, given that it's the Father that he means. In verse 43, I have come in my Father's name. You do not seek the glory that comes from the one who alone is God. That's the Father. When the Trinity's podcast returns, but isn't the Son also God? I think a lot of people who are listening right now might be saying to themselves, okay, look, but you're belaboring the point of the Father is God and the only God, and we agree with that too, but we think the Son is the only God too, and okay, maybe it doesn't say it quite that way, but we just think it's really obviously implied. Before Abraham was, I am. He says, I am. I mean, that's basically the same thing as saying, I am God himself, isn't it? So, how do you deal with those sorts of passages? At this point, the Trinitarian can no longer use this charge of assuming Unitarianism. We know now for a fact that the Father alone is identified as the only true God, the one God, and the only God. 
So now the Trinitarian is saddled with this huge, heavy burden to carry, it seems to me, to mount a case for Jesus being the only true God or the one God, in addition to God the Father. So the Trinitarian is going to say, yeah, it doesn't really say that Jesus is God in those specific words, but we can prove to you that Jesus is also that one true God. And so the Trinitarian would want to use a number of verses in the Bible. You asked the question about John 8.58, where Jesus himself said, I am. If we read John 8.58, we find Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, is Jesus calling himself Yahweh? Is Jesus calling himself Almighty God? Is Jesus identifying himself as the one God or the only true God? No, we don't see that here. That is a mere assumption on the part of the Trinitarians. In order to get there, the Trinitarian would have to travel a thousand miles. In the first place, the word I am in Greek is ego eimi. When we look at Exodus 3.14, the words used there is ego eimi oon. Mm-hmm. I am the one who is, or I am the being, some people want to interpret it. Exactly. And so, the one who is sending Moses is not ego eimi, it's ho'on. And so, going back to John 8.58, before Abraham was, I am, are we to interpret the words ego eimi to mean I am that, that I am, or Yahweh? Well, then we would have to interpret other parts of the Gospel of John as such. The blind man who is able to see because he was healed said, I am, ego eimi, I am the one who was healed. Yeah, I'm the blind guy who used to sit by the gate and beg. Yeah, and that's just right in the context, right? That's right in the next chapter, a few verses past this. And I think if you look up a few verses, there's also something that's just deadly to the interpretation that Jesus is saying that I am God himself in verse 58. I mean, look at verse 54. Right. Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. See, the Father is referred to as God here, who is none other than God Almighty or Yahweh. Yeah, I mean, it's presupposed that the Father is the God of the Jews. He says they don't know him, but yeah, I mean, Yahweh, the God of the Jews, that's the Father. So, I mean, if Jesus is going to turn right around and say, I am God, he must be saying that I am the Father. But you don't, you don't want that. <laughs> yeah, we would end up becoming modalists here, and we don't want that. Mm -hmm. And in verse 55, following, it says, But you have not known him, namely the Father. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father, Abraham, rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not even fifty-five years old, and you have seen Abraham? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Now, there are two things going on here. One is the idea that Jesus might have pre-existed. And the other one is the assumption on the part of the Trinitarians that when Jesus said, I am, he is talking about not only pre-existence, but also him being Yahweh. 
but the Jews were the ones saying this. I mean, just a minute ago, they were accusing him of having a demon and things like that. Now, they're misunderstanding him, thinking mm-hmm. that Jesus is trying to tell them, well, uh, I pre-existed and, uh, yeah, I saw Abraham. That's not what the text says. Mm-hmm. The text says, Abraham, not Jesus, Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it. The it there is Jesus' day, not Jesus. He saw it and was glad. Mm-hmm. So the Jews said to him, you're not even 50 years old and you have seen Abraham? Well, Jesus never answered that, of course, because he just left them alone in their own confusion. In a way, it's a dumb question. It, it reflects a bad misunderstanding, just like when uh, chapter 3, Nicodemus asks uh, if he has to go back into his mother to be born again. Right. I mean, it's, it's supposed to show spiritual blindness. That, But I mean, I think we yeah. also have to ask, you know, what about this expression, I am? I think it's mistranslated, frankly, here. I think it should be, I am he. That's what it means, I think, in John. I mean, look, we know the whole book is driving towards the claim that he is the Son of God, the Christ. That's the thesis of the book that it states in chapter 20. Let's let John explain John. What does he mean when he has Jesus say, I am? If you go back to chapter 4, he's talking to the Samaritan woman, and she says, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will proclaim all things to us. And Jesus said to her, I am. Dun, dun, dun. Right? I know, right? (laughs) I am. No, I mean, the New Revised Standard gets it correct. It translates, I am he, the one who is speaking to you. When he says, I am he, he's saying, I am the one, which one? The Messiah. I mean, that's the main thesis of the book. She's a good guy, so to speak. She's not supposed to be a spiritually blind person who can't really hear what Jesus is saying. She does get it in that sense. We have to take this statement seriously. Yeah, that's a very good point, Dale, that people who recognize Jesus when he says, I am, meaning I am the Messiah, people who hear him say that get it. They get that he is the Messiah, like that woman at the well. And so when we look at 858 of John, when he said before Abraham was, I am, well, I am the Christ. That's all it means, plain and simple. If we were to interpret this as, I am God Almighty, I am Yahweh, then we are literally ripping it out of the context and running away with it, you know, importing our Trinitarian view on the text. Well, what about the Father and I are one? I mean, isn't he saying that they're one God, two two different persons within one God, or isn't he saying that they're one essence? Context is always king. If we read not just John 10.30, if we start uh, reading John chapter 10, verses 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Does that sound like the Father and Jesus are metaphysically one being? No. It doesn't say that. He and the Father are one in protecting the sheep, Mm -hmm. protecting the believers. If we read on in verses 31 after, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. 
for which of them are you going to stone me? It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Now, the Trinitarian would want to bring that up too. You know, this is where it says, well, the Father and Jesus are one as God. They're one metaphysically. Now, again, the Trinitarians are listening to what the Jews are asserting here. We know the Jews constantly make all these mistakes. They misunderstand what Jesus is saying. And why would we want to pay attention to them, especially in this important thing right here? Yeah, we're supposed to pay negative attention to them. We're supposed to not draw the conclusions they draw. There was an episode of The Simpsons where uh, Bart Simpson is reading some kind of safety pamphlet from the Boy Scouts or something, and it says, don't do what Donnie Don't does. Donnie Don't was this guy who's always, you know, getting in trouble or hurried himself or something, and you're supposed to, like, not do what he does. So, I mean, quote, the Judeans, or Jesus's Jewish opponents in this book, they're the bad guys. You're not supposed to think what they think. I mean, it's snatching defeat from the jaws of victory to say, oh, the Jews understood. I mean, come on, they were right there. They understood what he was saying. Not these guys. Yeah, to be sure, sometimes the Jews are correct. There are some things that they get, but usually, most of the time, they don't get it. And we see that in the context. And so if we read verse 34 and after, Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law? I said, you are God's. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God. If I'm not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Now, you don't see anything here that says anything about Jesus and the Father being one being or being one God. As we can see here in these verses, he's talking about one in doing work, one in their work. Yeah, and there's a great parallel to this, not in the Gospels, but in 1 Corinthians 3. Paul's talking about, you know, not being factious and divisive and one saying, I follow Paul, another one saying, I follow Apollos, and so on. And he says in 1 Corinthians 3.8, and this is the New Revised Standard, they translate it perfectly well. The one who plants and the one who waters have a common purpose, and each will receive wages according to the labor of each. That translation, have a common purpose, the Greek just says that they're one. So a literal translation, he who is planting and he who is watering are one. Paul's not Apollos, Peter's not Paul, etc. They're not the same being. Um, it's right, not making right. a point about essence either. It's just saying that they're about the same business, just like Jesus and God in John 10. Right. And then also, if they're going to stone him for claiming to be God, which they say in 33, he clarifies that he's just claiming to be God's son in verse 36. So, Yeah, in the first place, he wasn't even trying to claim to be God. Now, one question that comes to mind is, did the Jews understand Jesus to be saying, I and the Father are one God being, or did they understand him to mean something else, or, you know, like he is simply calling himself God, some kind of God, like a, you know, a, a God who preexisted before he became a human being, 
Well, you don't really see that here in the scripture in the first place. But the way Jesus answered this charge was really interesting because rather than beating around the bush or trying to explain, hey, you guys are wrong and that's not what I meant, he went ahead and said in a question format, is it not written in your law? I said, you are God's. If he called them God's to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, Do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God? So now he's asking the question. Well, first he he made a statement saying, it's okay to call those whom the Word of God came, gods, right? because the Scripture cannot be broken that way. Yeah, and those people are less great than him. Yeah, those people are less great than him. He is far greater than those people. Mm -hmm. And in view of that, he should be called God too. But that's not even what he's trying to say. That's not what even what he's trying to point out or preach to everybody. He was trying to preach simply that he is the Son of God. There's questions in it, but it's really a devastating argument. The argument is something like, if these people who aren't as great as me could have this wonderful title of God applied to them, right? and if you don't think that would be blasphemy— How could it possibly be blasphemy if I, who am greater than them, just have the title God's Son? You're blaspheming because you are saying you're the Son of God. That ought to be the question, not something else. Yeah, in other passages, you know, they do uh, seem to have a rather expansive idea of blasphemy. Um, Right. One apologist I've seen recently, uh, William Lane Craig, appeals to Jesus' trial in Mark. Why don't we take a look at that real quick? He's in front of the high priest, and the priest demands, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? Right, Right. that's the whole issue. Jesus says, I am, okay, I am who? I am the Messiah, obviously. And then he continues, And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, Why do we still need witnesses? You have heard his blasphemy. What's his decision? And they say he deserves to be put to death. Well, what kind of blasphemy is this? He's not claiming to be God. He's claiming that as son of man, he'll be exalted to the right hand of the power. The power is a pious euphemism for God. He doesn't want to say God. It's really wrong-headed to say, well, the guy says he blasphemed, so clearly he understood that Jesus was implying that he's God himself. No, I mean, he just must have a really uh, expansive idea of blasphemy, that it's blasphemous to kind of claim this glorious position for yourself or something like that, or to claim to be the Messiah when you're not really the Messiah. It's just really squeezing the text hard to claim that there's an insinuation or an implication that Jesus is supposed to be God there. Not according to Mark. I mean, again, Mark tells you his thesis. The thesis is that Jesus is God's son. When the Trinity's podcast returns, doesn't Thomas call Jesus his God in John 20? Let's go back to John 20, right? 
didn't Thomas, when he saw the risen Jesus, refer to him as my Lord and my God? I mean, what could be clearer than that? That's his God. And there's only one God, so he must just be the one God, right? Yeah, John 20, 28 is the standard comeback by Trinitarians. In fact, it's not even a comeback. It's their standard apologetic verse. John 20, 28 says, Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Now, if we ignore the whole book and then interpret this as Thomas calling Jesus God Almighty, there is something terribly wrong. First of all, a few verses prior, if you look at verse 13, where Mary called Jesus my Lord, she didn't call him my Lord and my God. And then in uh, verse 17, Jesus referred to God as my Father and your Father, and my God and your God. Then all of a sudden, we want to interpret Thomas saying, my Lord Jesus and my Lord Jesus Yahweh, or God Almighty. That's a wrong way to interpret the scripture. Suppose he is calling Jesus his God. If that's so, he's going to be the sort of God that has a God, just like in Hebrews chapter 1. That's right. We're not inferring this. It says that the Father is his God. <laughs> and we know from elsewhere that the Father is exactly. the God. Exactly, yeah, yeah. In the same book, we know the Father is the God of the Jews. It seems to me that there are two ways to interpret Thomas saying to Jesus, my God. One is, I'm going to use the word representational. The other one is reflectional. Now, given the context, given the principle of agency and representation, if Thomas did in fact call Jesus his God, it would merely be in sort of a representational fashion. He's not calling him God Almighty. He's calling him as a representative of God the Father. Now, this verse can also be interpreted as reflectional. Given the context, the best that can be had is Thomas sees God the Father in Jesus. Mm -hmm. Jesus is in the Father and the Father is in him. Mm -hmm. If you read John chapter 14, beginning at verse 5, we see there, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Right there, seen him. Mm -hmm. Verse 8, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe? that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of works themselves. Now, we find that misunderstanding motif in these words. You know, it's not just the Jews misunderstanding Jesus, but it's also his disciples. Sometimes, yeah. Mm-hmm. At this point in chapter 14, he's been with them, he's been trying to explain things to them, and they still don't get it. And here is uh, John's opportunity to demonstrate that and to show that Jesus is God as a reflection. When Thomas called Jesus my God, 
God is in Jesus. The Father, God the Father, that's a reference to the Father. Yeah, it looks like it. And again, this is explicit in the book. God is working in him, through him. It's God who's really doing the miracles through him and so on. And the my Lord, you've just seen in the same chapter that Lord is, a, is used for Jesus. And we know that as time went on, especially in Paul, the Lord is usually Jesus. He talks about the one Lord, and that's Jesus, in addition to the one God, that's Yahweh. Right. So, yeah, this book's written, most people think, toward the end of the first century. And at that time, yeah. it'd be a well-established usage that there be one God and one Lord. So here is Thomas confessing the one God and the one Lord. It's not that hard reading. I mean, to hammer the grammar and just say he's got to only be talking about one, because it says that Thomas answered to Jesus. Well, sure, but that doesn't solve anything or the particular grammatical structure. Okay, so this is making sense so far, Mr. Schellenberger, but let me say what I think a lot of people are going to come back with. They're going to say, obviously, it's idolatry if you worship Jesus, if Jesus isn't God. And obviously, how could Jesus atone for sins unless he's God, for the sins of all humanity? And obviously, how could he go around forgiving sins? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Don't these things, worship, atonement, and forgiving sins, don't those just obviously assume or imply that Jesus is God himself? If you assume the Trinitarian way of interpreting scriptures, yeah, of course. But if you remove that grid and simply let the scriptures explain themselves, you will find that Jesus forgave sin simply because he was given authority by God. It's very simple. Yeah, Matthew 9, 8. Even his disciples were given authority to forgive people's sins. Mm-hmm, in the fourth gospel. In terms of the question, is it idolatry to worship Jesus? Well, it depends. If we look at the book of Revelation, chapter 5, verses 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, and they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. And then if we look at verse 11, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and glory and honor and blessing. Now, here we see to receive power and wealth. Well, God already has power and wealth. Power and wealth and wisdom and might. Mm-hmm. And honor and glory. But now he's worthy to receive these things. Mm -hmm. According to verse th uh, 13, And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea, saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And uh, the elders fell down and worship. Now, the Trinitarian would want to say that, well, see, God and the, the Lamb receive identical worship? Well, no, they were not worshipped the same way, because if you read chapter 4, verses 10 and 11, the 24 elders cast their crowns before the throne and said to God, Worthy are you, O Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So they worship God for who he is and what he did. They worship the Lamb for what he did. 
namely, he was slain for his service to God. And as a matter of fact, that's what we find in uh, Philippians chapter 2. God had highly exalted him and has given him the name that is above every name. Why? Because of his humility. Because he died. He was obedient to the point of death. That's the reason why we worship Jesus. It's not because we worship him as God. And therefore, it's not idolatry. And besides, God wants us to worship him as such in that fashion. I mean, it's not literal idolatry, like you have a statue of Jesus and you're laying incense in front of it. And it's hard to see how it's any kind of sin at all if it's what God's will is, right? If God exalts him. The other thing, too, that I want to say uh, to this is the, the sword cuts both ways. If Jesus is God-man, why worship a being who is fully human, although he is fully God? So, in other words, the Trinitarian is saying, well, worship God and man, Jesus. Well, wait a minute. You're worshiping the man there, too. You're worshiping a creature. That's mm-hmm. idolatry, right? Yeah, the human nature. The human nature the should human count nature as a creature. Or the human nature or the man yeah. there. You can't just worship Jesus as God. You, you have to worship him as God and man. And so you, too, are guilty of idolatry because you're, you're worshiping a, cre- a creature there. It's not a right definition of idolatry. I mean, that's not a scriptural definition. Paul says in yeah. Romans 1 that the pagans, the, the Gentiles, worship the creature rather than the creator. This isn't a right. case of that. You're worshiping the creator by worshiping his man that he wants worshiped. Yeah, you worship God through worshiping the creature he appointed. Yeah, it's to the glory of God the Father, like Paul says. When the Trinity's podcast returns, how can Jesus atone for the sins of all humanity unless he's divine? Okay, in terms of the atonement for the sins of humanity, first of all, God can do that. God can use a human being to pay for the sins of human beings. Why do we want to limit God? Why do we want to tell him how to do things? And God did it through his human Messiah. Now, the idea of God becoming a man is a philosophical argument. It is not in the Bible. And in fact, it's an overkill. Why does God have to become a man? By the way, that actually limits God. That's saying that God is a weak God. It would take himself to become a human being to pay for sins? Are you kidding me? I don't want to worship a God like that. And I'm glad that's not my God, because my God is far more powerful than that. My God had simply sent a human being to die for sins humanity. And one more thing, why is it that only the second person of the Trinity took on humanity in order to die for the sins of the world? Why not all the three members of the Trinity? Sounds to me like it's uh, picking and choosing and arbitrary. We get off into speculations real fast when it comes to atonement. I mean, 
How could we have grounds for saying that God could not find it an acceptable enough sacrifice that a sinless, you know, specially uh, miraculously conceived man should be the willing victim? How can we say that it's impossible for God to atone by those means? I mean, there's no contradiction in it, right? And it doesn't say anything. The New Testament doesn't connect atonement with the victim being divine. Which, of course, makes yeah. sense, because if you're divine, you're immortal and you can't die. But that's another conversation. Right. <laughs> it's a very bold impossibility claim that we're just pulling out of thin air. Right. Well, he couldn't do that. Come on. Well, right, right. I, I don't know. It looks like it just says he did do that. So if, if he did it, then it's possible. Yeah. Mr. Schellenberger, what would be your advice for someone who's into apologetics and they're starting to realize that some of these mighty arguments maybe don't hold up as well as they thought? I mean, what's something that you would recommend for them to do? I would recommend that you take your time looking at Dale Tuggy's work. He doesn't pay me or anything like that, <laughs> of course, <laughs> but... This guy has done a lot of things, a lot of things to help people realize how wrong they are in their defending, believing the Trinity. You have to do the hard work. You have to be honest. You cannot be lazy because if you're lazy, in other words, you're simply relying on Trinitarian scholars and apologists, and then you parrot the same thing over and over, well, that's being lazy. And when you're that way, you tend to be dishonest. You haven't actually looked at the evidence. The other thing that I would advise is be, be courageous. Ask God to give you strength and courage and be completely honest. Ask God with all of your heart to show you the way. And I believe that he will. I think that's good advice, and I appreciate your kind words about my work. Um, I hope it's helpful to people. And I would add to what you said that you have to realize that a lot of apologists are not good scholars. Yes. They're not scholars in the areas that they most speak to. And so you have some very kind of poorly educated, uneducated, half-educated people out there confidently gassing about the Trinity and they just don't know what they're talking about half the time. But people mistake confidence for expertise. And, right. and I've been there. When they're telling you what you want to hear, it's pretty groovy. Yeah. People also mistake expertise with being loud and being very good speakers, you know, being... Yeah, being aggressive sometimes. Being aggressive. Yeah. So they confuse style with substance. So we saw that in your debate with Dr. Michael Brown. And I can't believe some people are saying that you were crushed by Dr. Brown. And I think I heard that from uh, David Wood's website or somewhere, a Twitter. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking, this guy has no idea what he's talking about. I don't think he actually listened to the debate. Or if he did, you know, he wasn't really honest enough to look at the facts. I can believe it. I mean, when somebody's telling you what you want to hear or just things that you've always thought and, and it sounds really obvious to you and this other guy, I mean, you don't even really want to pay attention to him. What the heck is up with that guy? Right. Yeah. I mean, it's just human nature. Some people, when they watch a debate, they're always going to think their guy creamed the other one. And, you know, right. not everybody's quite that way, though. Some people, it will make them think so. You know, Dale, I, I'm at the point 
where I have to be so honest that, hey, we're talking about truth here. We're talking about God and salvation, and we have to be honest, brutally honest. This is not a game. (laughs) This could affect your eternal salvation and the salvation of others. In fact, one huge reason why I am really excited and ready to go is to help people like Muslims and Jews to see that Christianity is not Trinitarian. It is Unitarian. Christianity does not teach that God is three persons and one being. Christianity does not teach Jesus is God Almighty. Rather, Christianity teaches that Jesus is God's human Messiah, who was born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, died on the cross for our sins, and was raised by God from the dead, and is seated at the right hand of God, and someday he will come again here on earth to save people, to uh, give immortality to people who faithfully follow him. And if you're listening, if you're Muslim, if you're a Jew, or if you're not a Christian because of the Trinitarian leanings of Christianity as a whole, listen very carefully. The Trinity is false, the Trinity is unbiblical, and it should not be an obstacle to your coming to Christ. And so if you're listening, bow down to God and say, Jesus, I believe in you. I accept you as my Lord and Savior. Thank you for dying for me. Save me now. That's what you need to do in order to be saved, and you faithfully follow him. And with that, I end. That's the New Testament. I mean, there's no Trinity part, but it does say, if you call on the name of the Lord, you'll be saved. And by the Lord, it means the exalted Lord Jesus, the Christ. Yeah. Now, I'm an evangelist. (laughs) I'm an evangelist apologist, right? (laughs) Right on. Right on. We'll keep that up. Yeah. Well, thanks for talking with us. Thank you very much, Dale. God bless everyone. This week's thinking music has been the track A Foolish Ballad Instrumental by Tobias Weber, also known as Ausens at Eter. As always, there is a link on the blog post for this episode where you can listen to or download the entire track. listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.